Before we get started with this bonus episode, I want to thank Flash Floods, very good friends of mine, for allowing us to use their song, Palm of Your Hand, for the intro and outro music to this podcast. That song comes off of their brand new album, Halfway to Anywhere. I just want to encourage everyone to check them out on Spotify, link in the description of this podcast, and show them some love. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. You may be asking yourself, wait, why is there an episode of Decision Space in my feed right now? And that's because this is a bonus episode thanks to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters. So thank you so much, patrons, for helping us to reach our goal of 20 patrons. That's incredible. And for that reason, we had a poll and allowed our patrons to choose the topic of this episode, which is going to be our favorite things about our least favorite games and our least favorite things about our favorite games. So Brendan and I have both picked three games for ourselves in each of those categories, and we're really excited to go through them. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this topic. No surprise that our patrons came through with a really interesting angle. Uh, so I think it's going to fuel an exciting discussion. I just want to make sure to say thank you as well. It's always an excuse, uh, nice to have an excuse, to sit with Jake and record an episode. Also, even more exciting that it's so close to our next reward, which is that, or is it called a reward? It's like no, a our, goal, our challenge. It's a goal. It's yeah. an unlockable challenge, just what all board gamers want. An objective. An objective, yes. Our next objective is to reach 25 patrons. Uh, we're at 24 right now. If we do that, Jake and I are going to record private tours of our own personal board game collections. And this ro- objective bonus reward. We'll just go to the patron feed, unlike this episode. But Jake and I right now are setting the next objective, uh, the next goal, which is if we reach 30 patrons, so six new patrons, we'll do another bonus episode and we'll let the patrons vote on it again. And we'll be right back here recording more bonus decision space content for you. Yeah. So if you know a patron, thank them for making this concept, this content accessible to everyone. Brendan, what do you say we dive right into this topic? Yeah, that's do it, Jake. And I just want to say, I didn't go through and re-rank every single game that I've ever thought about or played. Uh, what? But I did decide for this. I know. I'm no. I did do my due diligence, though. I made sure to pick uh, games that really are my favorites that would be in my top 10 uh, or at least top 20 right now. Uh, they're games that I'm really excited to talk about and maybe some that I don't often get to talk about on the show. Uh, and also some games that I've expressed Uh, as maybe not being my complete favorites, but they're some of my least favorite all the time on that end. Yeah, I did the same thing. I think I might have picked the top three game from the previous recorded top 10 list. If so, happy accident. They're definitely among my five to 10 favorite games, without a doubt. And similarly to you for least favorites, I kind of just went with like, these games give me a strong negative emotional reaction when I think about yeah. them more. So yeah. you know, we, we kind of chose, like we weren't going to pick Candyland or Monopoly for this list. We're right. going to pick like hobby board games that a lot of people do enjoy. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And the way we're structuring this episode is we're going to start with our least favorite things about our favorite games, and then we'll end by discussing our favorite things about our least favorite games. So hopefully end on a positive note, talking about some things we don't typically otherwise like. But Jake, why don't you do us the honor first of talking about one of your least favorite things about one of your favorite games? That sounds great. And where else to start but with Steffenfeld's own The Castles of Burgundy. This is going to be no surprise to anyone who's listened to this show for any length of time. This is one of, if not my favorite game of all time. And it's a 10 for me, right? I I love everything about it. But even in things we love, there's going to be a least favorite bit. And there are two things about The Castles of Burgundy that stick out for me as, as a little bit of disappointment, I guess. The first is about the core gaming experience, which is that sometimes I get in a sort of rut of playing this game where I feel like the play is almost too smooth. Like I've played this game so much to the point now where it's almost plays itself. Like I have such well-established heuristics in my mind about what to do and when, what tiles to prioritize, uh, when should I be taking the extra worker action almost never <laughs> and and to the point where it, it feels like the game plays itself and there's a really really tight band of scores that I ever find myself in so it doesn't quite capture the high highs and low lows which is something I really look for in games I'm pretty much always scoring between 200 and 250 above 250 is like an exceptional game below 200 is like a really bad game for me um so like i can couch that in like this tight band of scores and know like within that i'm having really diverse outcomes but when i take a step back it's like i'm scoring pretty similarly overall generally in the 200 you know 20 ish point range and yeah, so that that's kind of like a downside to me. Just not as much like variability game to game. You've gotten too good at it. I think, you know, and I mean, maybe that's just like familiarity breeds content in that way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm the, the best player in the world by any means, but like I feel as though I'm definitely brushing up against my own sort of natural skill ceiling. And I was, I was being maybe a little bit sarcastic. <laughs> I, I wonder, Jake... You know, do you still find you you talked about this rich heuristics that you have for playing the Castles of Burgundy, where so much of this game, right? It's a it's a tile laying dice driven game where you have a board in front of you with different die value pips, and then you're collecting tiles that you're going to use the results of dice roll every turn to place out on the table. Do you feel like there's still interesting decisions uh, within every play you have, but just that those are fewer and far between? Or are you sort of at the point where really you're you're showing up because the overall experience you love, but you kind of, once you see the results of a roll, you don't have an interesting decision to make most of the time? I would, I would say I still do have interesting decisions. And usually those decisions come in pushing back against my heuristics. Heuristics, yeah. Like I know that I want to get a mine in age one, the first part of the game, if at all possible. But am I willing to, you know, spend my first, you know, two actions doing something that's like otherwise not mm. very helpful because I have to, you know, discard to get... You know, there could be a situation where I have to 
use one of my die to get workers and then a second die to collect a mine, even though I'm in a position where it's going to be potentially challenging now for me to even play that mine because I might need to get different tiles first to chain together. And now I'm basically down in action and down two workers. Is that still worth it? You know, maybe, maybe not. So there, there are interesting decisions there. I'll jump to the other thing that kind of comes to mind, which is that we've been playing a decision space tournament right now with the Castles of Burgundy. And it's just a fact of this game that there are unbalanced player boards as well. I think this is something that only really comes up if you get to the point of playing competitively, which is so rare for any of these games. So it, I don't think this is something that really affects a normal play experience, but there's one board, board eight, that is just much stronger than all the others. Um, and that's sort of disappointing when that comes up. We sort of had to discuss, do we use board eight or do we have to skip it? But then you have less options. So I'm not crazy about that. And, and in fact, I'm actually not crazy about any variants that let players pick boards in starting locations. At this point, my absolute favorite way to play the Castles of Burgundy, at least online, is on Yukata where they have the random setup where you just get a random board and a random castle placement. And for me, that infuses the more high highs and low low variability that I want in a game because now all of a sudden I'm starting in like a terrible starting location where I can only place like animal tiles to start. And what do I do with that? And that's creating novel and unique challenges that I have not experience in the game where if you're doing where you get to pick everything yourself you're going to only choose between a few different starting and that's going to create more of that monotony of play experience awesome i think that that covers it really well jake it's inter- it's fun to listening to you talk about what your favorite game of all time not in its most beautiful light so i totally get where our patrons were coming at with this episode i'm going to pivot to mine my first game which is going to be a game that Jake doesn't love, uh, but I think is awesome. And that's, it's a game I don't get to talk about on the show very much. And that's Cosmic Encounter. So Cosmic Encounter is a three to five player negotiation, sort of tactical negotiation game, really at its core. And it was first released in 1977, but I've primarily played the 2008 Fantasy Flight Games version. Uh, In Cosmic Encounter, you have a unique alien power that allows you to break the rules in a totally different way based on whatever your unique alien power is. I, when I play with this, when I play Cosmic Encounter, we play with a variant that you keep your rules hidden until you use your power, which gives you a dramatic reveal and can really shift the sort of the power dynamics at the table if someone keeps a hidden power that's quite strong and then reveals it midpoint in the game it can cause a shakeup on the table i love cosmic because it is a great game at generating memories and stories and not every play i've had of cosmic has been phenomenal but i've had absolutely phenomenal games of cosmic that i'll never forget and are some of my favorite gaming memories of all time Uh, so that's why it's my favorite game one of my favorite games i've ever played Two things that irk me about Cosmic Encounter. So much of the excitement, the kinetic energy that fuels my desire to get Cosmic Encounter to the table is the excitement of seeing what special alien power I will have. I have three or maybe four expansions for Cosmic, and I've just taken all the alien powers that I've amassed and shuffled them into the base game, and I haven't spoiled it for myself. I haven't gone and read all the alien powers that I haven't ever seen before. I have left them hidden. So... 
I love getting to see what my potential could be, which is why one thing that I really dislike about Cosmic is when I'm getting my alien power, if it flips and it's something really specific or a little bit narrow, that can lead to the game feeling less dynamic or a little toothless. There's a special alien power, Jake, in this game. You know, some of the alien powers are incredible. One of them is like, you're the zombie. Your ships can't die. All of a sudden, your fleet is just so much uh, stronger than everyone else at the table. And that gives you interesting position to negotiate from. But also, what if I told you this game, you're playing as a human? Oh, Whoa. <laughs> so boring. I think the human gets this like small modification in the amount of damage they can do when revealing attack cards. It's just like kind of asinine to me and seems like it goes a little bit at odds with the spirit of the game. But at the same time, winning as the humans would be really exciting. It's a little bit more challenging. Um, but I, I think for me, the thing about Cosmic that can be a bit of a bummer is not necessarily when games overall don't quite pop, which can happen, but just when a personal game, you just get given a power that isn't going to fire too often. It, it's a little bit of a bummer. Uh, there's also moments where there's this special mechanic called the flare card, where you shuffle these special cards into the deck based on all the alien powers that everyone selected. And it can be a really exciting moment when you get the flare card for your alien power because you get to use this enhanced version of that effect. And I think the flip side is if someone else gets your power or if your power never shows up, it's this sort of element of the game that that doesn't feel quite as fulfilled. Um, so I guess overall, it's the classic cosmic sort of disappointment of not every game pops and you're just sitting there wishing it did. That's interesting. Yeah, you're complaining about like how this random element sort of can pop up in an unsatisfying way when that's also the exact thing the that point makes of it great, right? Yeah, to those who totally. think it's great. So I don't know. That, that's interesting. It's mostly the powers, I'll admit. Okay. I just I don't want to play as the like game. Some wins. of the powers are just better than others and more some interesting, more are, fun. Yeah, and some of them are more narrow than others. And it, it's a little bit of a bummer to get a really narrow power. It can be there's fun in that potentially to play from this like ham fisted position. But frankly, I'd rather just all, all of us sit at the table with ridiculous red powers and try to navigate our way through the muck of like what is happening in this game. Like that's how I want to spend my 60 minutes playing Cosmic. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, if it's okay with you, I think we should move away from Cosmic Encounter to my number two game on my list of favorite games and something I don't like about them. And I'm going to go with Steppenfeld's very own Bruges. That's right. I'm using two Steppenfeld games, but to prove a different point. And I, you know, I kind of thought like, oh, I can't have two Steppenfeld games in my top three games. But then I thought, first of all, I make the rules. Second of all, why not? Third of all, I'm going to be honest with myself this year. That's my, that's my uh, resolution. So I think Bruges and Castle Burgundy for me are like my number one in two games of all time. So I want to talk about my least favorite thing about Bruges. And I think this is a good example because it highlights something that is just bothersome to me in a lot of different games, which is that it feels like if you want to play this game as well as you can it would incentivize you to do some really tedious memorizing in your downtime. And the way that comes up in Bruges, which is a game of dice mitigation, uh, all and then everything else in the game is card driven, is that the cards come in suits of different colors. There's five different colors in the game and blue, red, brown, purple, yellow. And 
each of those cards is a different, unique character, which is awesome, right? That's one of the incredible things about this game is you have a, a deck of cards and right, talk about high highs and low lows. This is like my number one game for that. Are you going to get cards that work well together and you're just going to like explode to the moon point wise? Or are you going to have a really difficult game where you're just trying to like make the best out of, you know, the the non-combos that you're dealt? I love that. Uh, so no downside there. The downside is that at many points in the game, you have to choose which card to draw between two colors. And at that point, it would be really nice if you just intuitively knew what type of characters are available in each colors. So for example, there's one card that is extremely powerful and it's called the Astronomer. So early in the game, it will help you to know that the Astronomer is a card that appears on a red-backed card. So when you're deciding which cards to draw, if, if you're choosing an otherwise irrelevant choice between blue and red, you should probably be taking red. But that's like, it's not fun to memorize this stuff. And it's not only about like these few super powerful effects, which wouldn't be so bad. There's kind of overall effects that are shared mm. across all the colors, for lack of a better word. And let me explain that a little bit better. There are suits of people in the games. There are nobles, there are artists, there are aristocrats, there are merchants. And for each suit of card, there's one card that gives you end game victory points for every uh, card in that suit that you have. So if I have the card that gives me end game points for artists and I have three artists, that's you know six points just off the bonus, which is a lot of points in this game. So yeah. that's another case where it'd be really nice to know if I just happen to have three merchants in my uh, house and I haven't seen, or sorry, in my you know player board in my houses that I have, and I haven't seen the card yet that power that gives endgame points for merchants. I would want to know potentially what color that is so I can give myself the best possible chance of drawing it if I want to do as well as I can the game. I don't happen to know all that off the top of my head. It's not really something that I'm striving to do in the game, but just knowing that I could become better at this game by memorizing something and I don't want to memorize it and I wouldn't encourage other people to do that. That's a downside for me. Yeah. We've actually talked a little bit. It's been a while since we talked about this on the show, but that sort of like partial information card backs and it, it seems like such an enticing mechanism, but it creates all this burden potentially where players then all of a sudden, just with one little piece of asymmetry in the uh, components themselves, there's this like, oh, but I should memorize what every single one of those cards is so I can make more finely tuned decisions. Yeah. A little and, bit frustrating. And the other interesting just thing that ties into this as an aside, I think is interesting, is that they in the, the original Bruges, you just have one deck of cards that's evenly split in half at the start of the game. So you have two stacks of all the different color cards shuffled together. In the re-implementation of this game in Hamburg, which came out this past year, they made the design choice to, instead of having two decks of a bunch of different colors, all the colors shuffled together, all the cards are divided by colors. So you can always pick from among the different colors uh, at the beginning of your turn. And that strikes me, that changes, that's a pretty big change in the game for a couple of reasons, but it, if I feel like that exacerbates this issue. Right. If you mm. always have all the colors available to you, then you would even more want to know what no. you could possibly draw in each color. So. Yeah, absolutely. So that's Jake's least favorite thing about one of his favorite games, Steffenfeld's Bruges.
Okay, Jake, my next game. It's a game I've talked about on the show, but only a couple times. Monolith Arena. This is a 2018 uh, sort of re-release reimagining of the game Nurishima Hex. That is a, a much older game and a really celebrated title. But the way I've always played this game is as Monolith Arena, which I acquired. And Monolith Arena is a two it's it's truly it's a two-player tactical combat game where each player has a unique faction that they're using to play hexes to a shared hex uh, sort of grid of 19 spaces. And essentially every tile in my collection of tiles is unique. I get to draw a few tiles and then decide which tiles I want to play to the board. And the tiles come in a few different flavors. There's these runes that enhance tiles around them and units which have the potential to do damage. There might be range units and up close units. So you're taking turns going back and forth, adding tiles to the board and sort of building up and building up and building up. And then every once in a while, a tile will flip uh, that will allow a player to start the start a battle. And then you resolve the whole board state. Uh, things will do damage to each other and it will sort of pare down. And it's highly tactical really interesting combat game that playing it it just clips there's so many interesting decisions and it sort of puts you in, in for me in the space of playing magic but playing magic the gathering classic dueling card game with some of the creativity that's there and the asymmetry and sort of having a unique faction with unique characters and units mixed with a game that i love a computer game called heroes of mind magic which also sort of had interesting hex-based uh turn-based combat it's not exactly that there's something unique and special here but it evokes those two games and makes it something new so it's just a game and system that i really love uh it's when i dearly want to play with jake because i yeah, think it, it sounds be right fun. up his alley there's two things i dislike about monolith arena number one the box says that it's for two to four players this is not a great game if you play with three or four players. The core box comes with four factions. And I found that if you try to play in teams, there's one of the factions is just a little bit stronger in that setting in a way that kind of makes that experience feel like an afterthought. So that's a little bit frustrating. I, I personally, I think with a relaunch of Monolith Arena, uh, its publisher Portal Games was trying to have this game reach a really wide audience, which is great. You want a higher player count. But realistically, at the end of the day, I think this is a two-player game through and through that has three and four-player rules. That's fine for me, but I kind of wish it supported three and four players because I could get it to the table more often. The other thing that I don't love, I think I'm giving myself one of these, Jake, and maybe you'll give yourself one of these two, is that Monolith Arena is a fantasy, a dark fantasy-themed combat game. Uh, that's great. That appeals to me. I'm interested in having unique factions. One thing I don't love about it is... There's some male gaze going on in the art that sort of turns me a little bit off and makes it harder to get it in front of people who might have an issue with the dark theme or even the, the combat theme in general. So this is a game that I would love to play with my wife, Maya. I think she'd really enjoy it. But the combat theme, the dark fantasy, and then the male gaze stuff, she's just like, why? I don't want to play this with you. Let's go play something else. Can we play a Reiner Kinesia game? So is that like late '90s Magic the Gathering aesthetic, where it's like it's, edgy stuff? It's closer to that than maybe it should be. Yeah, it's a little bit of like, like fourteen-year-old metal type yeah. dark, dark fantasy going on. It's not egregious. I would. I. I'm not. You know. It doesn't. It's just. A, it's a bummer at mm -hmm. the end of the day. I think so. For me, that's definitely my least favorite thing about a game that I really love. That's 
has that's dynamic, has interesting tactical decisions that makes you feel creative, that has a really simple core mechanism that makes every game play out differently, and has really great factions. Uh, there's two expansions. I've picked them both up. I've only played with one of them and really loved it. So there's a lot more in this game that I, I want to keep exploring. I just wish it had a, a new coat of paint, which is really what Monolith Arena tried to be. Naroshima Hex was a dystopian sort of take on the same game, and, and I think that theme didn't really no, resonate yeah. in the modern market so it's a bit of a bummer that they missed with their second swing and that's modern litharina one of my favorite games of all time that's funny it's that reminds me of the land air sea where like people don't really love world <laughs> oh, war ii no. so like what if it was like anthropomorphic animal world war ii <laughs> it's like right. no Look, come on at, it could be literally first, anything and even that at first it was sort of like oh great it'll be cool anthropomorphic animals yeah. and then the art came out like it was like Redwall. oh this is <laughs> right like Redwall or like root and then all of a sudden it was oh this is even more violent and grittier except it's animals oh no yeah, I right. waited until that came out because I was like, oh, that's definitely the version for me. And I saw it and I was like, oh, dear. Oh, that's dear. Definitely yeah. not the version for me. I'm taking the World War II theme. Do you think yeah. I should play the Neuroshima Hex phone app? I think I downloaded it at one point and then I was kind of like, mm, I don't love this. But I think that was more just responding to it being a phone app and the dystopia theme, theme. than the okay, gameplay so at all. I, I can't speak to that, Jake, because I tried to download it and it didn't work on my phone. I think oh. maybe due to some board game app phone app legacy okay maybe issues. i so maybe it's not so maybe you option. can't even play it okay yeah. right. one option for gotcha. us could be we could grab a grab a lunch hour date one day and play on tabletop simulator oh, i could teach you fun. there that yeah. might be fun yeah yeah lunch date let's do it let's or do we it. could just play it geek way exactly. anyway moving on <laughs> what <laughs> uh moving on to my third favorite game i'm gonna talk about something i don't like about this i'm kind of beating the drum that this is a near perfect game for me. And this one is extra nitpicky, I think. And I'm going to be talking about Broom Service, a game obviously I love. It might be one of my most recommended games to people just because I think it's going to appeal to such a large swath of gamers to non-gamers spectrum. And it's one that I always want to get to the table and, and will frequently bring places with me. So here are the worst parts about this game as I see them. Number one, there is a hard to understand rule in this game that I just can't ever, I have to look at the rule book every time I play that, which is a shame and just doesn't seem right because of how often I've played this game. And I think it has to do with the fact that the board itself can be a little bit confusing looking as you're looking at the regions. Some of the there towers. Are, it's just like a very faint, line dividing yeah. up the regions and then it matters where the towers you're delivering the potions to this is kind of a pick up and deliver which is kiki's delivery service themed game and, and it matters where the towers are and so could they could be in one region and on the edge of that region or they could be on the border and sort of in both regions and that can be a little bit confusing just looking at you kind of I wish that was a little bit more visually clear. So that's, that's yeah. a small downside. But then it interacts with the Druid cards, which there's the Peak Druid and the Valley Druid in this game. The Valley Druid delivers to pal or, uh, castles in plains and forests. The Peak Druid delivers to castles in hills and mountains. And the thing I always can't remember is, does it matter where the castle is or where your witch is? Because you could be standing in... A forest, and then there's a castle 
where that's on the border between the forest and the mountain. So technically that castle is in the mountain. I think the way that you're supposed to play it, if I'm remembering correctly, is that what you want to pay attention to is where your witch is and not where the castle is. But it's just a little bit like confusing and people I find misinterpret that in play quite a bit. The, yeah, I I definitely second your sort of foible, quibbles, not foibles, your quibbles with the with the illustration on the board. I think the board, all the art in this game is by Vincent Dutre, so it's it's evocative and it's great. But the usability of it does leave something to be desired every once in a while, and it's not so much that the game did it hugely detracts from the game, but just enough that someone once in a while might go to deliver a potion and you have to say, Oh, that's not actually there. And mm-hmm. then it kind of ruins the whole round and makes it feel bad feeling. So it's gotten to the point where I've started by when I teach this game, really going through and sort of talking and trying to read the board together, which then is like, Oh wow, this extra thing that we have to teach how yeah. to look at the board bummer, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing game. Yeah. So that's number one. The other thing is that, and this is extra nitpicky, which is that, one of the cool things about this game, one of the awesome things actually, is it feels like this box game, which is an inexpensive game in general, yeah. it comes with like a full expansion worth of content, all kinds of different modules you can choose to play with or not. The flip side of the board is very different from the front side. It changes things considerably. And that's all well and good, but it does pose this challenge, which is like, I, I feel on one one part of me loves that and another part of me, you know, because you can curate your own experience. Another part of me, it feels almost a little bit like lack of editing. Like, what is the best part of this game? What is the best way to play this game? You know, tell me. And I do think some of the modules are just not good. For example, I really don't enjoy playing with the amulets, which go in the mountain spaces at the corner of the board. And if you, and it's sort of a set collection with these amulets where if you get all three, you get 15 points and you get to activate a special power in the mountain space where you pick up the amulet. And I find that when I play with that, that is just an over-centralizing amount of points, especially when you couple it with the fact that you get the bonus action when you pick up an amulet. So there's just no reason not to go there. And then all of a sudden you have this board, but every everybody's just going in a very linear path for the three mountain spaces. And I find that when that's in, in involved in the game, I don't get to have as much fun with the core mechanisms of guessing and predicting where everyone might go. Uh, and, 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 and with a more open feeling of people could be going anywhere and navigating however they choose. It's like, okay, of course, everybody's going here, here, and here. And that can be an interesting puzzle maybe once. But in general, I'd be much happier if that was just left out of the game entirely. I also think the front side of the board is just a bit better than the back side of the board, which has these portals you can jump through and then get stranded on little islands where you can't come back from. That seems more interesting in theory than I found it is in play. So there you have it. Yep. I will say about the amulets, I think we talked about this on the episode some, but I like them a little bit more at two players than I do at higher player counts because it encourages interaction. But at the same time, one of the nice things about broom service is how open the decision space is and how many different directions you can move your witches. And it totally forces you to pursue those objectives in a way that just feels a little stale. Okay, so that was... Jake's least favorite things about one of his favorite games, Broom Service. 
Which brings me to my final favorite game on the list, Reiner Canizia's Babylonia. Babylonia is a tile laying game for two to four players in which players are trying to accomplish a lot of different things all at once uh, with the same pieces all at once. There's Every player has their own tile set of farmer tiles and noble tiles that they're trying to play to a board to get points by claiming farm spaces surrounding these special locations on the board called ziggurats that give you points just for playing next to them and special powers if you have a majority of pieces around them when they're closed off and also cities which when they're fully surrounded score based on essentially chains of tiles that players have connected to them i find by Babylonia is some of the most bang for my buck in terms of minutes and rules overhead in the depth and weight and sort of variety of interesting decisions that you get to make and the amount of game that's there for a 45 minute game or a 25 minute game at two players or even an hour game at sort of at most at four um, with new players and to teach. I think Babylonia is just an endlessly interesting game that I'm always looking to play and it, it makes it to the table easily. Uh, but one thing that can be a little bit frustrating about Babylonia is that there can be moments where new players who aren't experienced playing uh, Reiner Canizia's tile laying games and, and maybe aren't uh, as experienced sort of with the game itself will miss beats that they need to be hitting in terms of uh, timing around scoring opportunities or around uh, ziggurats. And there's some turns where your hand might be a little bit forced in what you have to do, which is great in a game between equally skilled players. But in trying to expand the number of people who I can play Babylonia with, sometimes I feel like I have to uh, take a little bit different perspective than I might with a game that has less flexibility and openness. Uh, because you can make pretty bad mistakes in this game in a way that can feel pretty, pretty awful. So that's something that I think among experienced Babylonia players is excellent and great, but really is probably the thing that I like least about it. When I'm teaching, I have to give a little bit more strategic advice and handholding than maybe I wish I did, and especially more than I wish I did for a game of its weight. I think that makes a ton of sense. It's interesting. I feel like all of yours are like, this game is like a masterpiece in like strategy and tactics. The only downside is that it has all this awesome strategy and tactics. <laughs> like Cosmic Counter is this great game of chaos and randomness. The only downside is the randomness. <laughs> well, I don't know what that says about you and your favorite games, but it's just a theme I noticed. That's interesting. Where you're, that's... I feel like the thing that like you love about the game is what you put as the... Yeah. I feel like maybe it's getting at this idea that sometimes even the things... I... <laughs> Maybe that's that that double-sided coin, right? Where sometimes the the things that people come to and surround most also end up having a crowd of people who dislike it, right? That sort of Mark Rosewater quote that if you want a game to be lo beloved, the game might also have to be a little bit be hated. And I think that I'm kind of a little bit maybe with some of these games calling out the things that I I love about them, but also there's a crowd that could be hate. Uh, to quote Mark Rosewater. That's why I think you're about cheating. Them. I'm cheating? How am I yeah, cheating? Yeah, because you're not saying things you don't like about him. You're saying things that like other people might not like. I don't like that when I... I don't like the, the art in Monolith Arena. 
I don't like when I get dealt the stinking humans in Cosmic Encounter. And in Babylonia, I don't like if I have to over over teach the, the strategy a little bit to, to newer players. Fair enough. Stinky downsides. The other people I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Babylonia is a solo game. Following up on that aside, terrible. I would never want to play it. <laughs> Brendan, this was a really fun conversation, I think. Uh, what a great topic people chose. It, and it really does force you to think differently. But I'm interested in getting over the other side of the coin and think about some of our favorite things about games that we don't care for. Awesome. Let's I'll do jump, it. All right, great. I'm going to jump in first with p- perhaps my most notorious take on the podcast, which is that I hate Splendor. <laughs> Uh, I think Splendor can be killed by just about anything. <laughs> I'm so happy right now, patrons, that you've you've created a situation in which Jake has to say nice things about Splendor. It's great. Yeah. Jake, go so, on, please. I'm not going to... I think on all these, I don't think it's... Right, this is the positive part of the podcast. So I don't know if we should belabor the reasons we don't like it. I think maybe sure. we just go straight to the things that we do like about these games. Okay. And, okay, so Splendor is great for having a very simple rule set right very easy to teach and i think the decisions you get to make in the game are certainly greater and deeper than the input to like get it up and running so for that reason it definitely is a game uh, that you know even though i don't personally care for it i would absolutely recommend this to new gamers as, as a as a gateway game the board game hobby the thing that really gets my brain churning to the extent that it does in this game is the closed gem market. I think that's a really clever decision and something that certainly opens up the decision space to allow plays that would not be possible if you could just have, you know, any number of red gems out there, right? Uh, kind of the sense of like, wow, somebody's cornered the market in in red and, and now that's making it much more difficult for me to proceed with my strategy, I think is a type of I don't want to use the term higher level thinking, but sort of a more advanced board game type of strategy that you might see in like a economic, a heavy economic game of some sort. And the fact that it can, those same types of really like economics can be applied to this super light game is undeniably cool. Yeah. It's neat that you might play defensively and in the way that you can because of this mechanism. Awesome. Jake, I'm going to try to use the phrase to ex- to the extent that it does at least once in my talking up um, <laughs> good things I like about games I dislike. Okay, so that was uh, Jake on Splendor. Now I'm going to go with my my first game is Res Arcana. Res Arcana is, I would say, a beloved game by Tom Lehman fans. Tom Lehman is the designer of Race for the Galaxy, an incredible card game. So he made Res Arcana, another engine building game. I, I have a hard time with Res Arcana. But one great thing about Res Arcana, a game where you sort of collect use cards to collect resources and then use those resources to convert them ultimately into points, is that this is a game that allows you to start rich. I think endowed progress when you start a game in medias res, right? You you have a position and you're playing from that position can be really exciting and it can give the game a sense of momentum that you might not otherwise have if you're starting from scratch and you have to build up. This mechanic might enable some, some aspects of the game that I think ultimately are reasons why I dislike it. Uh, but when I sit down to play, I'm excited by the fact that I 
have this uh, rich set of resources in front of me that represent the potential to fire off this sort of loaded cauldron, as it were, within Res Arcana. So that's my my favorite thing about Res Arcana is just starting rich and feeling like I get to sprint down a mountain. Yeah, that's great. It's, I think a great choice for this. Res Arcana, the number 128th best game of all time, according <laughs> to folks on Board Game Geek. And that was such an interesting episode. It was one of the earlier ones we did. And Decision Space Trivia, the only episode we've ever recorded twice because we just scrapped the first one. We were like, we didn't nail it. We're going to try it again. Um, and I think the interesting thing about that conversation is we both kind of felt like, you know what, this is a brilliant design. And yet it's not, we're not having as much fun playing it as it, you know, feels like we should be, but you really can't fault the design and like the craftsmanship. I think especially the card design uh, is really phenomenal. That would be the thing for me that I most appreciate about the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to note that was episode four of Decision Space. Wow. And, <laughs> and if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to listen to some more episodes of Decision Space, just really quickly, Jake, because we don't have episodes on. I want to highlight where we have episodes. Jake, you talked about the Castles of Burgundy. We have an episode of Decision Space on that. You talked about Bruges. We have an episode of Decision Space on that. And you talked about Broom Service, which we also have an episode on. So if any of the... Oh, and Splendor. And Splendor. Yeah, I'm and four Splendor. for four. <laughs> four for four. Look at you, Jake. Doing double time. Higher order uh, thinking to the extent that that's possible while making a podcast. <laughs> Res Arcana by Tom Lehman, and now we'll go on to my next game. But before I do that, I wanted to make a note, just because I think it's interesting. Splendor, the game I talked about previously, number 197. So both those top 200 games, obviously greatly enjoyed by many people, just not us, respectively. The next game I wanted to talk about is Catan. Really a game that I will be quite happy if I never play again. A lot of that has to do with the fact that it's just very played out for me, more so than I have super big qualms with the design, though I do. But let's leave that there. (laughs) The thing that I love about this game, I think the cheap one here, the cheat a little bit, is how many people it's welcomed into the hobby. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that, I think, is just how warm and approachable it is when you sit down and look at the board and you have those nice wooden pieces, kind of the classic 1995 like Euro game stylings of everything is made out of wood. You're you've got cute little buildings, you've got roads and so on and so forth. And I think that speaks to a lot of its success. It's just a warm, approachable thing that you can have in your house that families want to interact with, I think to a greater extent than sort of the mass market board games that I grew up in. When I, you know, in the days that I was playing Magic the Gathering, I remember seeing this in a game store for the first time, people sitting around playing a board game in a, you know, a Magic the Gathering store. You know, that was interesting. And looking at the game and them just like extolling how cool it is, like I immediately wanted to jump into it. And so that approachability is huge. Um, the other thing I really like about this game is that you're like putting buildings onto the map, right? And building up your own little area. And at the end of the game, you know, you have this, look what I have built feeling. Um, that's something that I really appreciate about a lot of games because it it makes, it softens the blow of losing, right? Because even though I maybe didn't win the game, I still accomplished all of this. I've 
you know, done all of this on the map. And I was thinking about this recently because I was looking at, you know, a, a, a thread on Reddit soliciting board game recommendations saying, I really like Catan, sort of what's next. And I was trying to think of a game that you're putting buildings onto a map like Catan that I would recommend for that mechanism over Catan. And I actually had a hard time doing it. So I'm curious, Brendan, what like what other games are there in this space that like in that kind of light gateway family game where you're actually like putting stuff on a map that's like building up your engine? That's really interesting. I wish that I thought about it more before right this moment. Uh, I think the Carcassonne, Carcassonne's another game that comes to mind of just no. getting to like build out a board and place things on it. Yeah. And you you are making investments in the way that you're kind of making investments in Catan, but it's a little bit less. Um, but it doesn't have the like the the getting I don't resources. Know, if you want to call it like almost like a gentle a gentle theming of sure. like you're putting a factory down and that's boosting your economy in some way. I think that is cool. And like, it's like an intuitive connection of the theme to mechanisms. That's also a big plus for this game. And and surprisingly difficult to think of things that do it better in a similar, like accessible package. If you can think of stuff that I'm sure there are games out there that we're just neglecting to think of, I'd be curious to hear what you would say fits this space better in 2023 so definitely let us know, you know, in our email, in the Discord, etc. With the caveat that it has to be an entryway game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When this is, yeah, you can't say Brass Birmingham. <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> Someone was going to say Brass Birmingham for sure. I think that Catan's an interesting one, Jake. I think it fits great on this list. For me, it's definitely not one of my least favorite games of all time. But I, I don't want to go back to it too often. I want to save save the happy memories. So for me... The next game on my list is a game called Catacombs. Jake, have you ever played Catacombs? I've played... Is is this the game where you flick stuff on the board? Yes, it is. Yeah, I've, I have played, owned, and sold Catacombs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Catacombs is a 2015 dexterity game uh, that plays in about... 60 to 90 to 120 minutes way too long for what it is in my opinion but uh the theming of it is that you're going on sort of a dungeon crawl uh and instead of that dungeon crawl being that you have abilities that you can use to attack monsters instead you have little wooden components that you're using so if you are an archer and you're shooting an archer you're going to use a really small thin wooden piece that you have to shoot across the table physically by flicking it with your fingers into a monster disc that's across the room oh and also your your personal player marker that's a wooden component on the board too so if you want to move uh try to get to cover you're going to have to flick and end up behind cover we're talking about positive things, so that to the extent that I can. My favorite thing about Catacombs is the conversations around the cooperation and planning for teammates that can take place in trying to beat a mission in this game. I think it's fun to sit back and look at the puzzle that's on the table and then see if you can execute on the plan that you've made uh, and how that might be carried out. So that is what I have to say about one of my least favorite games. Catacombs, a 2015 
two hour dexterity game. <laughs> I love dexterity games and the shut up and sit down review of this one just sold me on it so hard. And even hearing you talk about the mechanisms in this game and like how they've thematically integrated the dungeon crawl into the dexterity, it sounds so fun, but it's just unfortunately for me too, like the actual on the table play experience fell short of that like raucous good time that I was hoping for. Yeah, I I also caveat this with I I have a lot of desk dex, oh my gosh, I will also caveat this with I have some dexterity games that I really enjoy, like Coconuts, a game of flicking coconuts, not anything else, Jake. They're just coconuts into cups on the table using little monkey spring loaded statues. That's amazing, uh, but. Catacombs for me, just a little bit too long, despite the fact that like you, Jake, I think the way in which it evokes its theme is phenomenal. Just the the play experience brings it down. I also, another highlight of Catacombs third edition, which came out in 2015, is I'm almost certain it's the first Quan Chai Moria art, the sort of really celebrated board game artist that I ever saw. It's a beautiful cover that kind of you see the, the third edition one, the third edition. That's yeah. one I had too. Yeah. Yeah. The one that went, went goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I had an interesting conversation. I can go into an anecdote because we're in a bonus episode. So yes. I'm just like unfocused here. I'm just having a good time nice. with the patrons. I was having a conversation about game design recently, specifically around designing a disc golf game with some of my friends who are game designers and disc golfers. And somebody raised the point that for a disc golf board game to be fun, it almost like necessitates that it is shorter than 90 minutes because that's how long it takes to go physically play a round of disc golf. So, you know, it's not a a flicking game on the table about disc golf is not going to recreate actually playing disc golf. So if it takes as long as it does to play that, like what are we doing here? So maybe that is the inherent challenge for all longer dexterity games to overcome. You know, it can't, it has to be shorter than, the time it takes to like go actually do sports outside. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point, Jake. And maybe doesn't have to be shorter, but offer something. There has to be something more there. And for yeah. me with Catacombs, there wasn't quite. Yeah. All right. So that was Catacombs. Uh, let's go to my final least favorite game that I'll be talking about on this episode. And this one might be a little bit unfair because I don't know that I've given this game its due. Um I've only played it once on the table and one and one, I don't know, four fifths to two. I'm hoping two thirds, maybe through a digital asynchronous version of, and that is root really have not clicked with this game to say the least. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing good to say about it. And one thing that immediately comes to mind about root is, how freaking beautiful and fun it looks like it's the kind of thing that you know like i mentioned with Catan, that you just want to go to you want to interact with you know and i think even non-gamers would look at root and just be like how does this thing work i want to dive into this because that it's kyle farron right who does the art yeah yep yeah kyle farron's art is i love it i i really love the look of all of his stuff, Root, Fort, Oath, you know, that art style vibes me. I love that. I think the other 
thing that's really worth celebrating with the root is just the incredible ambition of this game's system. I I think we need to do episode on async not asynchronous asymmetric games in general. What makes a game asymmetric? You know, and clearly Cole Worley has taken the idea of asymmetric games to a place unrivaled starting with sort of the vast system which is the first time i heard about vast like somebody plays as the cave somebody plays as the soldier somebody is the dragon you know yada yada i know that's been re-implemented or in a new version about a, a manor where somebody's playing the haunted manor somebody's the spider somebody's something else and all these things have totally different uh ways of playing and win conditions the exact same thing is true in root which is you know, risen in esteem of so many people all the way up to the 28th best game of all time on Board Game Geek, where you have truly asymmetric factions that work in completely different ways from one another. And I think, you know, to have that as a core system and achieve balance in the way that this game clearly has uh, to sustain tons of competitive play, tons of expansion, all that stuff is just an incredible accomplishment of design whether or not the actual gameplay works for everyone. I think something as ambitious as this is inherently going to be something, in fact, right, that is going to have lovers and haters as as we've already discussed in some of these other games. Yeah, absolutely. I think, okay, Jake, to your point of this is a Patreon bonus episode, we, we get to do fun things, we get to throw bones. That's just say we're going to do a what we talk about episode on asymmetry in games. Yeah. So that's definitely on the schedule. It'll happen sometime in the next two months. I don't know about y'all. I don't know about you, Jake. I've really missed our What We Talk About episodes, and I'll be really excited to return to those. So I think we also will probably do one on elegance yeah. as well. Yeah, that, that's going to be such a can of worms, but like, let's do it. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, they both are. I mean, looking at some of the discussion in our Discord already about people not agreeing whether or not chess is an asymmetric game. <laughs> so oh, we my have a gosh. Lot to talk about. Don't get me started. <laughs> okay so your last one that was root. root. yeah okay art and ambition i think those are great things about root the final game on my list is a game that we covered all the way back in episode eight of decision space and it's a doozy it is terraforming mars terraforming mars is a mega hit board game i think one of the most successful games of the last half decade and game six best game of all time yeah so this is a beloved game uh but like a theme of this episode beloved things oftentimes have behaters and i to some extent am one when it comes to terraforming mars but there's an aspect of terraforming mars that i find absolutely delicious and it's the funding of awards by players Uh, so there's this mechanism in the game in which there are shared objectives I think in the base game, there's a set of five of them. And I'm going to read out a couple of them so you can get the flavor. There's the Landlord Award that is owning the most tiles in play. The Banker Award, having the highest money production at the end of the game. Uh, there's the Scientist Award, having the most scientist tags. Sort of things like this, these general large objectives that would be pretty good for you anyway if you pushed your play in that direction. So the way the system works is that Players throughout the course of the game can elect to buy one of these awards. You can fund it. And when you fund this award, it becomes a shared objective for everyone at the table. So when you buy the Landlord Award uh, that gives victory points at the end of the game, 
to the player who owns the most tiles in play, you don't buy it for yourself. You buy it for the table. Uh, you make that an objective that anyone can get. And what's really great about the system is that the person who buys the first award gets a discount. It costs only eight money to do it. Then the next person to buy an award, it costs 14 money. And then the next person to buy the, the third and final award, they have to pay 20 money. So there's this really rich tension in the system where one, you don't want to buy, you don't want to fund an award that you won't win. That's a huge waste of money that's going to hurt you. So you don't want to do it too early. If you do it too early, there's a, a real chance that you could end up funding an award that someone else is going to win, but you don't want to do it too late either because then you have to pay a, a huge amount of money. And if you wait too late, there might not even be the potential for you to fund an award. So you don't want to miss out on that opportunity also. So I find that the system is really interesting in forcing players to make tough decisions around evaluating things that are at the heart of Terraforming Mars, like when is the game going to end? That's really the dramatic question of the game. Uh, and this mechanism aligns perfectly with that. And I think that it elevates it in a way that few other things in Terraforming Mars gets elevated. I think clever objective systems take good games and make them into great games. So for me, the funding and award system is one of the best things about one of my least favorite games, Terraforming Mars. Least favorite games. And yet you gave us like a seven on the podcast. Care to Did I really? Edit? I think so. I feel like you gave it like a high score. I think you, I gave it like an eight, so. <laughs> okay, but you you titled it Brendan Pan's, Pan's Terraforming Mars. Yeah, old, good old episode eight. That was for the clickbait. Yeah, you know, I we, think we for have me, a list. We have a list of ratings. You talk, I'll find it. Going back and looking at the actual descriptions of the user ratings, which is something uh, on Board Game Geek, the one to 10 scale, something that Jake, you've really pulled in as we've developed our decision space rating house style. I would say that looking at them now, I would rate Terraforming Mars a four. Not oh. so good. <laughs> Damn. It wait, wait, I want to read out the little descriptor. Not so good. It doesn't get me, but could be talked to into it on occasion. Oh, you're in big, big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'd give it a four. All right, well, that was great. Let's just end it on that note and just leave people with that one. That was Brendan's final game, a game he rates a 4 out of 10, Terraforming Mars. Brendan, this was super fun doing this bonus episode. Yeah, I, I loved it. It's really great to have an excuse to meet and talk with you about games. So thank you to everyone who's contributed to our Patreon. Uh, our Patreon, excuse me, you've made the show better in really meaningful ways and i like upgrading jake's microphone helping us pay to host the podcast to host our website to reach about our audience so we can make even better content but thank you too for helping us reach this milestone of 20 patrons to unlock this awesome episode because i really enjoyed it what's better than decision space on a saturday uh you could probably tell me but to me that sounds pretty awesome so hopefully we get to do more of this in the future totally and i'll just end by saying Obviously, you heard that we used a different song for the intro and outro of this podcast. It was the same song that we used as our Reiner Kinesia dance break last episode cast. And I think we're going to use this song in any future bonus podcast that we may or may not do to sort of diversify them. The other kind of difference here is I'm probably going to be a little looser with the edit just because that's a lot of editing in one week to get out multiple podcast episodes. Uh, so I hope you can excuse us for perhaps a little bit more 
stuttering speech that I try and, and try and incorporate into our, our main canon episode. So thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this bonus episode brought to you by our patrons. One more time, thank you all so much, and I hope you have a great week. And really quickly, if you want to learn more about uh, our Patreon, just go to decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon. And you can learn more about it. And until next time, have a great week, y'all. Bye. Bye. Some people make a lot of money All in the palm of your hand And yeah, they think they are so funny But you know it's all just part of the plan What are your real motivations? Well, it's not hard to tell And you don't need congratulations, no Because you don't learn your lessons